Welcome to another episode of Conduct Detrimental, the college sports episode. Terrence, what's up, my man? Good to see you, Dan. It's been a little bit. Always love to be on with you. We've got an interesting guest today. Got to talk about some interesting happenings in the world of college sports. I picked you in particular for this episode because, hey, I know you're obsessed with college sports, as am I, but this story on the updates on the NCA regulations uniquely seem to exclude your pro bono efforts as well as mine, which we will get into. So two topics on today's episode. Really, the NCA's new regulations on NIL, and we're going to be joined by Amanda Christovich at Front Office Sports. She's one of our favorite people. I don't have any preference between AJ Perez and Amanda Christovich. They're both great. They're both in my top two. No particular order. Amanda. <laughs> is all things college sports and AJ has really been on the nose of all things professional sports. So between the two of them, they have that space covered, uh, obviously both at front office sports. So we're going to talk about the new NCAA NIL regs and we're going to talk about the Matthew Gee NCAA concussion case, which, you know, we want to be the ones along with Amanda to plant our flag in that story because if and when the NCAA loses on that case, people are going to be scrambling for people in that case to figure out what happened, how it happened, if anyone predicted it. And I don't think we can quite predict it yet, but certainly a big story. So Taryn, before we get into the fun stuff, I think congratulations are in order. Oh yeah? What for? Dan. Let me just say, our podcast sponsored by Themis Far Review. Taryn, I happen to know through a couple of sources that you use Themis Far Review, and I did say by some deductive reason that I don't know anyone that took Themis and didn't pass. So, Taryn, did you perhaps pass the New York State Bar? I passed all the bars, actually. The source being this podcast, I did use Themis Bar Review, and I was very pleased with both the subject matter and the results. And I don't think every bar prep company can say that. Really, like the instructors on there were tremendous, and I highly recommend Themis to anybody who likes short videos and constant opportunities to apply the knowledge. I have a lot of law students that reach out to me and they're like, what can I be doing? Can you have any advice for me? You know what my advice is? Next time someone reaches out to me, just be like, how can I get your promo code at Themis? Just to ask me, I promise you, I know my people at Themis. I will literally send your text. I'll be like, look out for this name. Give this person a discount. So if you're not doing that, <laughs> uh, you definitely should. Taryn, let's do some fun things. And actually, I should say, your beard looks a little more full. Your hair looks a little more full. Your eyebrows look more full. I think it's just like this post-bar glow. I think that's what. Well, yeah, I definitely have a lot of joy and glad to be working. I'm a real lawyer. I'm being uh, sworn into the bar tomorrow. So my parents are in town. It's all good stuff, Dan. Let's keep here for a second before we bring on Amanda. Taryn, you uniquely, and I give you your flowers every time anybody asks me where I got the idea from. Minnesota Law School has a pro bono clinic. And I, I'm going to let you correct me with clarifications because I know there certainly are some. The NCA had some interesting regulations that basically tried to shut down any law school clinic that was tied to an undergrad university that played sport. They didn't want the college athletes to get, I don't know what their actual reasoning was, but whatever reason they didn't want these clinics to exist and be able to give student athletes benefits without giving that to normal students. So I thought of you immediately and I'm like, oh, that's not great for my man, Taryn. I don't think it matters for me. We're in New York Law School. We don't have an undergrad, so we're in the clear. But Taryn, you advised me, I saw this on your Twitter, that this does not apply to you. So like I tell Wallach, take a victory lap here. Yeah, I'm not sure that I can take the credit because it wasn't necessarily my idea to do it this way, but our clinic is unique in the sense that it's not really at the law school. It's housed by Fredrickson and Byron, the firm where I work. And so all of our clients are reaching representation agreements with attorneys at Fredrickson and Byron, not 
with the University of Minnesota Law School. And that was done precisely for this reason, that there might be future changes in guidance that from the NCAA that make it sound like you can't have these types of clinics housed at schools where there are undergraduate athletic programs. So thankfully, yeah, we don't have to worry about it. So that's one reason. And then the second reason is that our clinic is open to any student that can take advantage of name, image, and likeness rights, right to publicity. If there was a big YouTuber TikTok star. We'd love to have them. Maybe if misconduct rejoins TikTok, we could uh, we could represent them. We're lucky in the sense that we had the foresight to structure our clinic in this way, where you know we represent students at all schools and we are willing to represent all sorts of students. So our services could not be possibly any more open than they are. I think it was very smart, Taryn. Misconduct at some point will rejoin the fold. I was talking to Emily and I'm like, <laughs> Emily, what do you want to do? You want to get more involved in conduct? She's like, I'm going to bring back misconduct. Emily passed the bar using Themis. You passed the bar. No more excuses. Listen, I'd, I'd love them to. Jason passed the bar using Themis. Jason has, Jason's still been a content machine on conduct. Jason had some breaking news on the Conor McGregor stuff. We, uh, yes. Jason and I recently published for Westlaw today on the Washington stuff. Karen, I got to get you involved in that. Do you want to publish with Westlaw for me? Have a good deal. I would love guys. to. Um, Let's do it. And by good deal, uh, Josh uh, Newmanville, who is at Westlaw, listens to the podcast and goes, you had some really interesting things to say on Washington. Do you want to just write for us? And uh, I was thinking, I'm like, how much are they going to pay us? And then uh, I quickly learned the answer was zero. But I'm like, "Eh, for the betterment of sports law, let's get it. Westlaw is Thompson Reuters, right? Westlaw is Thompson Reuters. Yeah. Are those guys in Minnesota? Of course. That's another another fine Minnesota company. Westlaw's not short on cash. I know my firm uses Westlaw, and I, I found out the, the, the vicinity of how much my firm pays for Westlaw. So they, they could probably throw in us a, cool, a couple bucks, but uh, if they do want to sponsor the podcast, we are certainly open to that. Okay, so speaking of sponsors, it's partnerships, all this fun stuff, I think I think it is about time, Taryn, that we kick it over to our special guest, Amanda Christovich of Front Office Sports to talk about all things sports law and obviously sports business. So we will kick it to Amanda. Amanda Christovich, it has been a long, long time. Welcome. Conic Detrimental, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Usually I'm the one interviewing you. Well, the tides have turned. So now you're on the other side and Taryn and I can ask you anything and everything regarding two of the biggest stories in college sports. That is number one, the new NCAA NIL regulations. You came in very hot online last night. We'll I see did. if you want to divulge, but uh, in the comments, you were going in very hot. And I think you emerged victorious. And then we're going to talk about the case, which more people should be talking about, which does potentially have tremendous ramifications. That is the Matthew Gee. Uh, he's the former USC linebacker who passed away, suing the NCAA for wrongful death relating to his CTE condition. So both very big stories. But Amanda, we're going to give you the floor. Why don't you give us your high-level takeaways from the new NCAA NIL regs and maybe, maybe like your two favorite takeaways, maybe? Two favorite takeaways. Where did you get that from? The high-level takeaway is that the NCAA came in saying that they were providing clear Clarifications to guidance that they had already published. They published their very slim interim NIL policy on like June 31st of last year. Then they published some quote unquote clarifications about boosters actually on my birthday, May 9th. Yesterday, they released more quote unquote clarifications. My takeaway was 
these were not so much clarifications as they were entirely new rules that in many cases, at least from what I can tell, contradict what the general consensus, if there can be a consensus on NIL, at least with folks in athletic departments that I've talked to, understood to be acceptable or not acceptable. The thing that I thought was the biggest deal was the fact that the NCAA explicitly said that athletic departments cannot help athletes negotiate deals. They can't procure deals for the athletes, right? That was very significant to me because, as you know, there are state laws across the country, some of which prohibit athletic departments procuring deals, some of which say nothing about it, and then some states don't have laws. Correct. So the understanding was if you don't have a state law preventing your director of NIL, because that's a thing now, by the way, from helping athletes actually get deals, then there's nothing wrong with that. So long as they're not pay for play, so long as they're not recruiting inducements, right? Which is a whole other can of worms. And they're like from Boise State to St. John's to BYU. There are examples of this. And there are examples of this being, at least in these athletic department's eyes, completely above board. They weren't like dropping like duffel bags for worth of cash they were putting out press releases saying like look what we did isn't this cool like there's no nil law that prohibits this in new york that was one thing the other thing i just found frankly just like very disturbing and again my personal opinion is the fact that the ncaa came out and said that athletic departments can't give athletes resources to review contract to get their taxes together or even have graphic design help i do not see how that rule is to the benefit of the athlete in any way, shape, or form, because the number one thing that athletes need right now is access to people they can trust. Full disclosure, I help run an NIL pro bono clinic at New York Law School. Taryn, I got the idea from Taryn, I'm being very honest. Taryn had a, the first clinic, maybe in the country, at Minnesota Law School. That second thing we mentioned, maybe it's a little bit of both, like affects certainly both clinics, but full disclosure, we both got the alarm bells up when that happened. But Taryn, I'm going to let you take the floor here. This is very near and dear to your heart. Yeah, actually, Amanda, before I saw your tweet yesterday, I got a DM from a friend of mine that was like, sorry about the clinic, man. The NCAA sucks. And I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, we were very lucky in the sense that our office of the general counsel or our compliance department, they kind of saw that that might be the next wave of governance that comes from the NCAA. And so that's why our clinic is housed at a law firm, the law firm where I work and our services are through the law firm. So it's not directly through the university. So they wouldn't be able to. And also it's available to general students. But my question was more, and this is something that you said in your tweet, is that they're saying that they're going to retroactively investigate these things. And they've said that they're going to investigate the team-wide deals as well in their previous guidance that they've released. My question is, who is going to do that? Who, who do you think that the NCAA is going to tap to do that? And, and what are the odds that that is successful in any way, given that the last couple of schools to tell the NCAA to kick rocks have been successful? I can't speak to the success. I don't have a ton of faith that there will be, like you said, success in really punishing schools. I don't, I don't think there's an appetite for that anymore. But I will say that about a month ago, I believe the NCAA released a job posting for an NIL enforcement staffer. 
a person on the enforcement staff whose full-time job it is to focus on investigating NIL deals. And then when I asked the NCAA about it, because it literally was like on LinkedIn um, and on Teamwork Online. It was, pro- it was probably on our job board too. Like yeah. Like when I asked the NCAA about it, they were very clear about this job is to help like explain NIL to the schools and provide resources. But the vast majority of the posting was about investigating bogus deal. And again, it's what boggles my mind about the NCA, and I'll talk more about this when we talk about the Gee lawsuit too, is instead of investigating deals where like the athletes are exploited, they're investigating deals where the athletes are making more money than they should. So theoretically, this NIL enforcement officer will be the one doing the investigating. But when I wrote that story, a lot of the guys in their basement on Twitter did aptly point out, seriously, one person, that's it. All of NIL, you're only going to hire one staffer. How much are you really going to be able to get done? I was going to say the NCA has literally done nothing in terms of enforcement. So I guess they, it's, it's a positive sign they've hired somebody, maybe. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'm still not even sure where the power comes from, because like I mentioned, there have been schools, Memphis most recently, where they basically tell the NCAA, you know, get out of here. We're not actually going to listen to your rulings. And, you know, Carolina did this also, and they've gotten away with it. So I'm not sure why the NCAA thinks that they're going to be able to enforce it when basically last July, they wiped their hands clean of the entire situation by releasing a couple of paragraphs for rules. Exactly. I mean, and the other question that I have, which again, you guys will understand probably better than I would, is the question of jurisdiction. The NCAA is really saying that they're going to be able to compel random people, whether they be boosters or, you know, like people who started collectives. Why would you get on the phone? What is there to compel you to get on the phone, right? If you're one of those people, maybe it's the NCAA threatens the school associated with said collective and then the school calls a collective and is like, please comply. Just please. You know what I mean? I don't know. Do they have subpoena power? I'm going to say something a little controversial here. So hold on to your chairs here. Don't like drive off the road if you're if you're driving and listen to this. I'm not going to name the school, but I saw an event that was posted on LinkedIn. Three people on the panel. One person on the panel was someone very high up at the collective. So I'm like, interesting. Let me look what their background is. How does someone get this role? And I looked and they're a collective at a school in big 12 country, we'll say. And that person was an alum at that particular school in the compliance department for 12 years. And I'm like, this seems odd. How does like, but yet these collectives are not supposed to be speaking to the schools. But I'm like, the person that is employed at the collective in a very high capacity worked at this particular school for like a decade. So I'm like, that would be very odd if he was not talking to his former colleagues there in the compliance department or whatever whatever it was. So I don't think that the rule is that they're not supposed to be communicating with the collective. Most of the collectives I've seen, you've got college coaches out there shilling for their local collective. You take Bruce Pearl, for example, five years ago, everything was about facilities. And now he was like, actually, let's not upgrade the facilities, funnel money into the collective. That's what we need to compete. But there's nothing wrong with saying, right? Because the collective is essentially a business being run by alums, right? It's kind of Mm -hmm. this weird unholy alliance, but from a legal standpoint, like the school can't be operating like the collective, like a little puppet. Hey, everybody give money to the collective. And then like, we actually get to decide where the money goes. Like, yeah, that's not supposed to be happening. But I've said this a couple of times and I'm, you know, Amanda is, you know, I I was talking to someone at the power five level today. I won't mention who it was, but it's the thing. It's right. You have, you have a collective that's spending a lot of money to benefit the school. It would be odd if there was not some type of communication between the two. It's just a matter of where and and when that line is crossed. 
But guys, like, let's remember in the history of sports, there's all these rumors and innuendo, right? Like a hundred dollar handshakes with agents paying this one and that one and the schools, like with the whole Zion stuff, you know, every school was like basically thrown under the rug during the Zion trials. Is it odd that there are whispers that the school is involved with the collectives again? Like, is it that odd that like the compliance director from one school is now that running the collective? You know, I guess it's to be expected. The only difference now to the earlier point, Amanda, that you raised is that some of these restrictions are written into laws, written to real NIL laws that prohibit this conduct. Again, like is an attorney general going to come out and like tattoo a certain university and tag them and get them in trouble? Like, There's no incentive to do that. Again, if the NCA, I'm happy they hired an enforcement person. Let's see if they do well, it. Well, they're like, in the process of doing so. Let's see how long it one, takes. One enforcement person. It only took them a year and a half to post a job with that title. Is that, is that yes. possible? That should have been my lead. Going back to the earlier part, you know, I think the NCAA tried to send a message. That these policies are, are really not meant to punish athletes. It's meant to, I guess, look after the schools and whatnot. But to the, to the clinic and pro bono conversation, if you're not allowing athletes to have that right, you are kind of harming the athlete. Yeah, maybe you're not punishing the athletes, yeah. but like, you're not making it easier for them. One of the many things that really just rubs me the wrong way about, you know, in, in the NIL space is the idea that NIL, good NIL education is about teaching Gen Z 18 year olds how to post on social media. They don't need that. Right. You know what they need? They need someone to explain to them how to do your taxes. I don't yeah. know how to do my taxes. My parents hire an accountant to do my taxes for me, okay? <laughs> I'm extremely privileged in that regard. My parents are wonderful. However, if I really needed to, I would like to think I could figure it out. I'm not 100% certain though. And by the way, the NIL taxes are even more complicated than a full-time job because it's like freelance taxes, 1099, you know. So 18-year-olds need that. I do not understand how prohibiting that sort of resource, because I feel like that could be the easiest thing in the world. You know what I mean? The athletic department like brings on an accountant. It's like, this is our guy, call him, discounted rate or whatever. You know what I mean? Or for free. I just don't get it. Yeah. And even if you wanted to apply that rule, like it has to be open to the general student body, not every individual in the student body is going to have a complex tax file. So if you wanted to keep it open to students who have the ability to take advantage of that right to publicity, I, I think that that seems like an easy thing to do. But what the NCAA is doing here or it appears to me anyway, is like trying to govern with some sort of fear of repercussions down the line. I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it appears that the rules that they publish, you know, in and of themselves could open them up to potential litigation. So I don't, I just don't get it. I mean, I know that they tried to like, in like quietly put the whole like broadcast revenue thing in saying like, you can't share, like NIL doesn't count. Like you can't share broadcast revenue with athletes because the house case where like the class certification was filed. I don't understand why they think they have any less liability now than they did a year and a half ago. when that was the whole reason they didn't publish these types of rules. If, if I can find a good transition, it's a great one. So listen, we'll obviously follow up on the NCA stuff to me as a, to put a, put a pin in it until the NCA punishes someone. You don't really have to be concerned about liability because there's no injunctions that you're filing if there's no punishments, there's no nothing like that. So maybe, maybe if and when they hire for that particular position, then when that person gets settled into their job and they do the LinkedIn post, like they landed here, then they start like doing their investigations. <laughs> It'll be like a year yeah. before we even think about it. They claim they're actively investigating, by the way. Okay, let's do this. Amanda, you said something really interesting that triggered me. The other topic I, we wanted to have you on is, I'm going to call you this, the foremost expert in the Matthew Gee case. Is that possible? Oh, thank you. It's not a very crowded field, but you're the foremost expert. No, it is not. 
it's me, so, it's me and all my personalities. Here's where we're at. The NCAA is now dealing with the case, and, and Amanda, you and I have spoken about it, but dealing with their version of the concussion case. Now, why it's particularly interesting to, I think, attorneys, it's a very old case. It's a very hard case to prosecute. It's a very hard right. case to defend against because it's a case from the 80s and 90s. Amanda, you sent me, uh, and it was your story where I saw it where the NCAA lost all these different sports science studies they've done through the 90s. And in theory, that's the question, whether the NCAA knew more about concussions but weren't letting on. And I don't know, a book from the 1990s, like I don't even have my law school textbook from like 2011. Sometimes they just get destroyed in the ordinary course of moving apartments. And other times things are destroyed because they don't want the evidence around anymore. So there's a lot of tough parts about defending the case. But where I want to take our conversation to start is something that you just hit on, right? How the NCAA changing the rules impacts their liability from the years prior. That's where I find the fascinating part of this case. Matthew Gee played in the 80s and 90s. And this lawsuit it can happen now because he passed away. I think it was it was it 2018, Amanda, right around there? In 2018, yeah. So the actual cause of action for wrongful death didn't accrue until the guy passed away. So if Matthew Gee is successful here and successfully wins against the NCA for hiding and being fraudulent and misrepresenting certain concussion studies, you know what that's going to do? It's going to open up the floodgates to any and all prior athletes that are ultimately diagnosed with CTE to mm-hmm. sue the NCA. So mm-hmm. what can the NCA do to protect itself moving forward? What rules can they change? The answer is zero, right? This is a mounting wave of liability that if it hits the NCA, the last thing the NCA has to worry about is hiring an NIL fake rules coordinator job. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Idle wave of lawsuits in every single state, the thousands of athletes that play sports every year, football, rugby, soccer, this one, that one. I don't know if rugby is a D1 sport, but hockey, you know, you, you know. maybe it is. It's not just football players that everyone's going to try to strike it rich. Matthew Gee is not someone that like is suing for his millions of dollars he made as a professional athlete that he ended his career. These are he's a normal guy. He lived a normal life for 20 years after sports. So mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of lawsuits from, from pretty normal people that didn't go to the pro. So I don't know, Amanda, I'll give this to you. I think it's a fascinating case. You've been watching it live. What are your perceptions of the case? Anything that stood out in the first couple of days of the trial? Yeah, I mean, I think that the first couple of days have really centered around, first of all, expert testimony rather than, you know, Matthew D's family members and things, you know, things like that, that are, that's going to come later. So far, the testimony has like from the plaintiffs has attempted to, I guess, to establish two things. First, they spent a lot of time on this missing sports science handbooks thing. So they brought in this guy who is a sports medicine historian, and he could not find sport injury handbooks from 1934 to 1961. The reason why you would expect the NCAA to have those things is because unlike the average law student who moves every year, the NCA has a library and a distribution center and full-time librarians on their staff to keep track of every single document that runs through their system that might even be of potential importance, okay? That's the issue. Like, that was the I guess the picture they were trying to paint. The NCA invests so much in saving like all of Walter Byers' old emails and faxes. And oh, but mysteriously, you know, 30 years worth of sports injuries handbooks are gone, right? So that was like one Sounds thing. like spoliation, Dan. That's exactly what it is. So Amanda, yeah. Amanda picked up on it, but like, I don't know if 50 years of books go away. And the only reason I'm watching the NCA because we were very close to the Big Ten saga once upon a time. And once people started questioning you know, counting the votes and the voting procedures. And, you know, very quickly, the those rules disappeared from online. I'm just like, oh, we're, we're going to take this away. You've lost privilege. You can't look at this anymore. That tends to happen. It's one thing to take something, if we're talking about legal stuff, it's one thing to take it offline, but preserve it in its current iteration. 
So another thing for that piece of literature to not be available for review. So right. was it destroyed or lost or burned in some mysterious fire that coincidentally just had ashes of those books? You know, we, we don't know. Right. And I think one of the biggest moments so far that I've had where I literally like my jaw kind of dropped a little bit was there was this former NCA research director called, or his name is Todd Petter. And he, they like played part of a depot that he was in. And basically they were like, there's this shelf list of all of these NCA sports science documents. And they're like, are you aware of the shelf list? And he's like, yes, in fact, I helped create some of the documents that are part of the shelf list. And the lawyer goes, well, are you aware that they're gone? And he looks at the camera and he goes, you mean to tell me that all of these documents are missing? And then they cut it out. <laughs> wow. It's like, yeah. The lawyer goes, yes. Do you have any idea why this would be the case? The guy's like, no. And it's like, this guy's life work. His, it's his life's work, right? Here that it, it went to, it was 1938 to when? 1934 to 1961. They have the books from 65 to the present. Yeah, they have later books. But I mean, the other thing, I guess, I think what they're really trying to say, because they found a couple things in like university libraries. I think it's less about the fact that they can't find them. So what do we do now? Because the NCAA, I guess, is claiming that they can't find them because they never existed, even though there was a line item in the NCAA shelf list describing them. I think the point is, is they're saying that like literally other universities kept these things Again, you will know the phrasing better than I would. It's they, potentially they, an adverse inference, I think, is, is that, is that what yeah, we're like they, they feel it's like they feel guilty. Yeah. Like like they know they're guilty. So, so like this con- they this concept, the only the only reason, and it's listen, I'm, I'm all for courtroom drama. I'm honestly all for it. But <laughs> if the books that were lost were up through 1938 to 1964, and the question is, what did the NCA know when Matthew Gee was playing sports? It's a little bit different because Gee played in the 80s and 90s. And the question is what they knew then. So somebody, I was talking to someone about this case. And I, I said, like back in the 80s, part of the NCA's defense is, you know, this doctrine of the assumption of the risk. Like you kind of know what you sign up for when you play football. But the optics of that argument are different now. I think you can make that argument now much stronger than you could back then with Dr. Ben Amalu coming into play in like, you know, the early 2010. And he's testifying, by the way. Has he testified yet? No. I mean, this is, it's big. He testified. We watched the concussion movie, like Kristen Winsky is making rounds on Twitter. Like, but that sphere of sports medicine wasn't nearly what it was now. If you had the same exact lawsuit 40 years from now with a current college football player who has CTE, passes away and sues at the same exact grounds. You know, I think that uh, argument that like, you know what you're signing up for, you know that there is kind of an unavoidable risk of head injury when you play, but you do it anyway. Like, I don't know. But I think here for the NCA, I think it's less as strong of an argument. The other one, Amanda, which I wanted to get your thoughts on was, we talked about this when you wrote your article for Front Office Sports, but I don't know, we're staring him in the face is this, uh, we call it persuasive precedent from Oregon with the Taggart case, right? Oregon, you know, an Oregon uh, university coach and a strength and conditioning coach essentially were alleged to have worked players too hard and the players suffered some form of the kidney disease. And those players turned around and sued the NCAA and the NCAA won. There was a finding of negligence. The NCAA did something wrong but it wasn't viewed to be the proximate cause of these players' injuries. So isn't that the same argument here? Is that the same thing that the NCAA's best foot is like, hey, we might not have known enough about concussions, but like you still played, you played for USC. We're not at all the practices. Like, isn't there just a, isn't just too like attenuated? Isn't that, isn't that going to be their best argument? 
Yeah, and I'll tell you right now that in the trial brief and the opening arguments, the NCA is arguing that substance use disorder actually killed Matthew B. And whether or not that's true, the plaintiffs sort of, in, I guess, kind of in response are contending like, yeah, at the end of his life, he did have substance use disorder, but there's scientific evidence to suggest that substance use disorder was caused by CTE, which was caused by him playing football. So we'll see how that goes. I just want to circle back, though, to the question of what the NCA knew and when, because they're really doing, a, in my opinion, a better job than I expected them to, to prove that the NCA knew more than we expected, because that 1933 handbook does have information about the dangers of concussions, first of all, 1933. Then they spent like an hour on this, like going through all the years. In 1985, there was an article written in the NCAA News, which was, I guess, their like little newsletter before newsletters were newsletters about a junior college football player who had died on the field because he had suffered two consecutive minor concussions within, I guess, like an hour of each other. And he literally just died. And the NCAA News article was like, yeah, so like we kind of screwed up here. We are going to write concussion return to play guidelines and we will get back to you and their first guidelines again that weren't mandatory but the first guidelines don't show up until 1994. We typically from a public policy standpoint don't use like subsequent fixes and improvements as evidence of negligence because we want people to make improvements and changes. In this case is the NCAA going to have that held against them do you think? why they changed it, right? If they changed it because they were trying to protect themselves from some type of litigation event, you know, that's one thing. But if they changed it because they were actually learning that the studies were improving and we're not improving, you were learning more from the studies and you had to change your guidelines, right? It depends on the reason for changing it. I don't know. I think not to, not to get too far off the legal stuff, like Amanda, you, you said something that I think is important and we should talk about it here in terms of just being like too attenuated or they're changing after the fact. I don't know if the fact that substance abuse was involved, I think potentially could be worrisome, right? If you're trying to figure out what the cause of this is. But you and I talked about this about a month ago. It's like, I don't know, if you play college football at a high level, that means, I don't know, I've never heard of anyone not doing playing, playing high school football at a pretty high level, practicing, maybe playing uh, Pop Warner football, Pee Wee football. Like right. You could start suffering concussions uh, many years before you get to the collegiate level. So I still think that's a tough issue. And then, yeah. you know, not to belabor the point, but like, and I, again, don't, I don't want people to think I'm like some NCA shill here. I'm just I'm a defense attorney <laughs> by heart. So all calls and stuff. You might go to the doctor every time you feel like you have a concussion, but that's in like 2022. Back in like 80s and 90s, like you probably didn't go to the doctor. You probably just thought you had a stinger. You shook it off. You maybe saw stars, you pop back in. But like, unless it's like we're living in the Truman show of 2022 and there's like a camera on you at all times and anything you do is being trapped on film it's pretty easy for the defense counsel to poke holes like yes i guess the substance abuse could be a way to poke holes but if you played football at a high level in college like i don't know couldn't you have started to suffer cte for years prior to that maybe you had maybe you were at a point of no return before you even stepped foot on a college football campus to have you have the medical records to disprove that so i'm not like rooting for the ncaa but i'm just pointing out that it's a very hard uphill battle on the plaintiff side, especially with an old right. case, records are missing, you know, so it's it's by no means an easy case. But if he comes through, you know, the family from Matthew Gee, by all means going to set off fire alarms across all 50 states, every former athlete is going to have be on high alert for this. 
Right. Well, I can't sit here and do this podcast with you guys without asking you at least one question, because usually that's how it goes. And I think this is related to your point. So Matt Gee played on the same team as Junior Seau. He played on a team where there was a, a Sports Illustrated article about this, that multiple linebackers have passed away. So then the question becomes, I'm wondering if that means anything. I don't know if that's going to be admissible evidence. Just like in general, that to me, like feels like it has some sort of weight to it in terms of Junior Seau played in the NFL. Mackey didn't. They both had CTE. But like also, like you said, you could get it in high school. You could get it younger than high school. So there are studies that suggest that you are way more likely to develop CTE. Like college players are more likely to have it than players who stopped in high school. But is that because they developed it in college or before? Like you said, definitely an uphill battle. I think it's going to be pretty easy for them to prove that the NCAA knew more about concussions than they let on and they didn't tell anybody that they should have. But I don't know, you know, as far as the sort of medical aspect of it goes, like, I guess we'll see what they come up with. Yeah, I mean, playing more football is obviously going to lead to, you would think, right? Yeah. Larger symptoms and findings and junior sale playing at a really high level at the NFL. I think the fact that he has... CTEs, you know, as compared to Matthew Gee, they're kind of like apples and oranges. Someone played for many, many years uh, after, but obviously what happened to Junior Seau is tragic. A good 30 for 30, if anybody is, is looking for one. But yeah, so we'll see. Amanda, when, and obviously the trial is continuing to progress. If you follow uh, Amanda on social media, and by the way, congrats on your blue check mark. It's been a long time in the making. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, it was, it was a big day. Check out Amanda's feed for updates on the trial and also the live stream. But Amanda, when are we expecting a decision on this? Actually, for the close of trial, for the close of the record. Yeah, close of trial, it's going to go deep into November. I'm assuming until like around Thanksgiving. Yeah. I mean, literally, like, again, I'm not a lawyer, but there was one expert witness that testified for like two full days, and that was just one guy. To me, that makes me feel like it's going to be a long trial. Hey, Amanda, you've been excellent. Thank you so much for being uh, generous with your time, and uh, congrats on a successful, amazing, incredible debut on Connect Detrimental. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So that was Amanda Christovich at Front Office Sports. You can find her on Twitter at A Christovich. That is A C H R I S T O V I C double H. There's the second H. So Amanda was great. It's been a long time having her on on the podcast. I'll say it. I think Amanda is a, a rising star in the biz. She didn't say it. We can say it for her. Let's just say somebody pretty big dropped in her replies and tried to call her out on something. And Amanda did not back down to this person who is, we'll say has six figure Twitter following. And I was very proud of Amanda. So I'm not going to name names. I don't want to give this person any credit for, for trying to, uh, I don't know, Terrence, is this, can we say this is gaslighting? Is that is that what this was? An attempt? An attempted gaslighting? <laughs> I don't know. I, I think it's just a misunderstanding of the, uh, of the policy. But Did Amanda you? is dynamite and front office sports has some tremendous writers and we like them over there. Yeah, we like the sports. So yeah, certainly follow Amanda. And I thought Amanda was excellent. But Taryn, we do this once a week. It is what to watch for. I will lead with mine, Taryn. So talk a lot on this podcast about football issues. I've been watching a lot, a lot of basketball. The Los Angeles Lakers. So I was shopping around. I was trying to find different futures bets. And I'm like, hey, let me look, take a look at the Lakers futures. So I saw one site that I bet on had the Lakers line at 46 and a half. And then every other site I looked at had the line set at 44 and a half. And I'm like, interesting. I don't really have that many hard thoughts on the Lakers, good or bad. But this line seems to be way off. And this is the outlier. So I'm going to slam the under at 46 and a half. So Taryn, the Lakers start the season putridly. And I put a good amount of money on that Lakers under. So my what to watch for 
Westbrook is the Lakers continuing to lose games, Russell Westbrook being a complete disaster and the blame game and the ultimate divorce that happens with LeBron James, Anthony Davis and the entire Lakers gang. That thing could go up in flames very quickly. Well, I'm going to go watch those Lakers tomorrow, actually. My mom loves LeBron, so I'm going to take her to go see uh, see them play. At least he's like the one bright spot for them. I really don't care about the Lakers generally, though. I do appreciate Russ's one year in D.C. for my Wizards, though. That was awesome. So respect to Russ. He just he needs should, to be on a bad. He should have stayed but, in Washington. That, that team made the playoffs. Like, he was great. Oh, yeah. No, no. The trade worked out really well for the Wizards, though. So I'm very pleased that they dealt him. I, they got Kyle Kuzma and some other pieces there better suited for the future now than they were before with Russ. So I'm glad that they traded him. But yeah, he needs to be in a situation like that where he can be like the one or the one A and, you know, he doesn't have to worry about chucking up brick after brick and he can just, he's perfect for a market where there's a bad team because he tries really hard. So fans will want to go see Russ. Russ gives 110% effort all the time, even though he's just not a great shooter. I don't think any team wants Russ. I think he's, I hate to say it, I mean, and I'm happy to be wrong, but Russ looks like a completely discombobulated, broken basketball player right now. So well, not, that was not, the thing yeah. in that game where he went 0 for 11, it, he was facing off against the only contract that he could have possibly been traded for at the time in John Wall. And that was the original Wizards and Rockets trade that was made. So it's not going well for Russ. I am happy that John Wall is, is finding his footing again, quite literally. And so that's all good. My what to watch for is new season of Love is Blind is that no it the new redeemed team documentary came out and uh and so I'm looking forward to possibly watching that this weekend. I saw it, I thought it was excellent. I recommended it to my class, and yeah, I think it was very good. So Taryn, excellent recommendation. But before we put this episode of the books, we do have one final piece of business. So Taryn, I will say goodbye to you and I'll bring in our friend Conlon Farrell. We do it each and every week. It is the better edge segment. Sponsored by Better Edge, use our promo code CONDUCT for a free $20. Conlon, Mr. What you were Mr. 3-1-1, the artist formerly known as Mr. 3-1-1. Now, mm. Mr. 4-1-1. I, I, I see you're like a little bit taller today. You're puffing out your chest a little bit mm. more. 4-1-1 is pretty good. I'm feeling it loose. I'm letting it hang. I'm keeping it nice and light, keeping it loose. Yeah, got back on the winning side of the column last week. Gang Green, my boys, delivering in Denver. Russell Wilson, Les Broncos team, really never had a shot against. They got lost in the sauce, as most teams do. So, yeah, getting right back on the horse with a win last week. And I'm going to deliver, hopefully, well, again. Don't jinx it, Colin. Last like, I'm oh. hot. I'm hot. I'm Mr. Undefeated, and then you went 0-1-1 one, one in back-to-back back week. So, listen, I'm keeping score here. Don't give me that face. Conlon, nice job with the Jets last week. We had the Better Edge guys on uh, this past episode talk about it. I'm sure you've gotten well, – I know you've gotten on their radar, so they certainly appreciate it. So, Conlon, we are now a new week, so do you have a new pick for us? I do indeed. This pick is actually coming at you primetime Sunday night football when the Green Bay Packers, led by Aaron Rodgers, the reigning NFL MVP, travel to Buffalo, face Josh Allen, and hopefully the Super Bowl – Buffalo Bills. They're getting 11 and a half points though. So that's just too many points for an Aaron Rodgers led team. So actually the first time in his tenure in Green Bay, he's been underdog by double digits, 11 and a half, just too many points. Listen, I know the Packers have lost three straight. I know they haven't looked good. They've lost three straight to some, what people think are skeptical about being good football teams or not. The Jets were one of them. So at least one of them was a dominant juggernaut, but Hey, the Packers traveling to the Bills mafia, 11 and a half, 
take them right there. Just too many points to give Aaron Rodgers, especially in prime time. They know this is a must win for the pack. So there's a lot of wonky spreads out there this week. A lot of double digit spreads. The Packers plus 11 and a half. That's where you want to take it right there. Prime time Sunday night football. I like it, Colin. And for whatever reason, it's happening at the same time between Brady and Rodgers. Those guys' stocks are at all time lows. I don't really feel, I mean, I could be wrong about Brady. I'm not sure. A lot of different things going on in the man's life. Just, you know, we talked about the divorce stuff in the other episode, but Rodgers, everyone forgets. Someone just dropped Rodgers in my pretty deep fantasy league, which I'm like, wow. track that. Dropped just- Rodgers. Rodgers, listen, fun fact, right? Back to back MVP, the reigning back to back MVP. Yep. So I do find it odd that Rodgers has lost the Jets, the Giants. Who was the third team? He lost another the one. The Washington Commanders last week. Jets, Giants, and the Commanders. That should be a 3 0 stretch. You would imagine, right? Rodgers, they lost Devontae Adams, but. Largely, that team is intact. So I think it's fluky. I am a Bills fan, but I am certainly not going to be on the Bills minus 11 bandwagon. I'm going to sit this one out. But if you're not a Bills fan, you have my blessing for this one, Conley. I don't always give my blessing to your picks, which has been wrong. Most of the right? Goodness, yeah. This week, this week, I'm with you. I'm I'm riding with Conley here. Plus 11 and a half Packers. Take them right there. Another win to be Mr. 5 1 and 1 next week, hopefully. Conley, excellent, excellent job. And that'll do it for another episode of Conic Detrimental for myself, Colin Farrell, Taryn Sharma, Dan Wallach, the whole family at Conic Detrimental. We'll see you next time on another episode of Conic Detrimental.